about 12 years ago, I went to work for a company in their accounting department, and it was a small company, or yeah, relatively small company, six or seven accounting staff, and uh, they just started using a new accounting system. Uh, it was their full ERP, but they didn't quite have it fully implemented yet. And so when I started, my boss had me uh, spend several weeks just entering data into the system. And this was a consulting company, and so I was entering in the time and expense for the consultants, for the advisors, uh, and setting up the different clients they had. I set up billable projects based on the system, the country, the currency, the tax jurisdiction, uh, time and expenses, all the tedious things that are involved in accounting for a company like this. I produced invoices. And none of this was really what the company hired me to do. Uh, my job as an accountant was going to be to uh, look at the system, to produce reports on this data, uh, to help produce financial statements, to ensure the accounting software was working properly. And thankfully, my boss told me up front why he was having me do all this data entry, uh, or it really would have felt like a waste of time. Um, he wanted me to understand um, everything about the accounting system from the most simple data entry and all the forms behind that all the way through uh, because things go wrong in any system. And when things go wrong, he wanted me to know what the problem was, right? Some report wouldn't come out right, something wouldn't work, information would be entered wrong. And he wanted me to understand the system from the ground up so that when there were problems, I could fix the problems. Uh, because to really deal with the issues, you have to understand the foundation. If you don't get back to the core issues, then all you do is end up sticking band-aids all over the place. And that same principle is really true in many areas of life. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he has begun by centering them on Jesus Christ. Christ is the foundation and the cornerstone. And once Paul makes sure that they're established in that foundation, he's going to begin addressing some of the false views that the Colossians are dealing with. But first, he wants to make sure that they understand Christ. And today we're going to see Paul begin to make this transition uh, from ensuring that they understand Christ uh, to warning them about pursuing other teachings that oppose Christ. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Colossians. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 983. That's page 983. Uh, we're studying God's Word. It will help you if you will open your own copy of the Bible and read as we study. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we have copies outside in the lobby. Colossians chapter 2. And we'll be reading from verses 1 through 5 this morning. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray together. God, our Father, you are great and glorious, full of splendor and majesty. And we praise you that you allow us to come to you, to pray to you, to speak to you. And we praise you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to earth for us, to reconcile uh, the world to you, 
to reconcile lost people to you. Lord, we only are able to come into your presence because of Christ and his work for us. So as we study your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to understand it. Help us to see the glory and majesty of Christ and all that he has done. Help us to rejoice in the fact that he would enter into the sinful world and become a man. And he would live among sinful men. That he would take our sin on himself. Lord, we love you because of what you've done for us. And we love your people because of what you've done for us. We ask today, ask today for your people throughout this world uh, that they would rejoice together as your people gather and worship you and praise you and study your word, sing praise and say encouraging things to one another. And Lord, may we be a people who love one another. May we care for each other and serve for each other and find various ways to build each other up in Christ so that you'd be honored and glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've studied Colossians, we have seen how Paul has thanked God for these Colossian Christians. He's thanked God for their faith, for their hope in the gospel. He's expressed how he prays regularly for them and their knowledge of God and wisdom and understanding. And he wrote out this beautiful hymn of praise to Christ, the Lord of all things. And he reminded the Colossians of how they have been alienated from God, and yet Christ reconciled them to God. And then last week, we saw how the Apostle Paul served and suffered for Christ, uh, the one who brings the light, brings to light the mystery of the gospel. And as Paul continues in today's verses, he focuses in on true knowledge and understanding of Christ. In fact, the riches of full assurance in knowing Christ is really the center of today's passage. So let's study it together. The first main point that we'll see, fully knowing Christ. Fully knowing Christ. Verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now Paul's introduction that I want you to know highlights he is about to say something important. Listen to me. You need to know this. What Paul wants them to know is this struggle that he has for them. Uh, Struggle connects us back with chapter 1, verse 29. Uh, There at the end of chapter 1, Paul was struggling with all the energy of Christ Here he has a great struggle. And Paul's struggle is for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans, and for all who haven't personally seen Paul. Uh, Laodicea was about 12 miles from Colossae. Uh, It must have been started by someone other than Paul, since he says they've never seen him. Uh, And yet, Paul is deeply concerned for them. He struggles for them, he says. A good minister of God, a true shepherd, has the attitude of Christ towards God's people. He's concerned concerned for them. He cares for them. Uh, The love of a shepherd transcends cultural boundaries. Paul loves these Colossians. They're a different region from them. He's never met them. He cares for the Laodiceans who are also near the Colossians. He cares for all the people who've never seen him face to face. You know, throughout the Roman Empire, everywhere that the gospel has gone, uh, Christians from all over the known world, he, he has a concern for all of them, regardless of who they are or where they're from. Now, obviously, an elder's primary responsibility is to the members of his own church. Um, But beyond that, any true minister of God has a concern for Christians regardless of where they live and regardless of what church they go to. This is a good challenge for our elders to love and care not only for our people like this, but for people throughout the world. Uh, In fact, this is part of why Redeemer offers 
free counseling. Uh, you may not realize Marshall has had a huge impact on Christians throughout our city and state uh, who will never enter the doors of our church. Uh, sometimes even pastors and deacons of other churches. And that's because as a church we care about Christians and Marshall is one of our elders, just has a passion to help people become more like Christ. So Paul, he's concerned for all Christians who haven't seen him personally, probably because if they had seen him personally, he would have shared the things that he's about to share with the Colossians. In verse 2, he specifically mentions what his concerns are, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Now in our day, we often connect the heart with emotions or empathy. In scripture, the heart is really the core of a person, the center of our willing and our being. Jesus said, what comes from the mouth comes from the heart. Our heart determines how we think and act and live. And thus our heart is encouraged or discouraged based on how we respond to the world around us. And Paul wants their hearts to be encouraged. Paul's been sharing about the glory and the preeminence of Christ. He knows that this message will, in fact, bring encouragement and confidence. Really understanding the primacy of Christ will help us view ourselves and view the world in right relation to Christ. And so we will be encouraged when we understand how great Jesus Christ is. We'll be encouraged when we really understand what Christ has done for us, entering into his own creation, taking humanity into his own person, living in submission to the Father, dying in our place, reconciling us to God, drawing us from the kingdom of darkness and placing us in the kingdom of light. When we understand how Christ has taken away our shame and granted us adoption as sons and daughters of the king, everything else that happens in the world is given right perspective. We know we're forgiven people. And so we want to be people who forgive others. Rather than holding bitterness and resentment, we want to forgive. All the offenses that we experience in this world, we're able to set them aside because we know that we have been forgiven much. And if we have been forgiven much, then we want to forgive much. We see how God freely gave grace to us at great cost to himself. Grace is free to us, but it was costly to God. And so we want to give grace to others, even if it is costly to us. Your husband or your wife sins against you and you give them grace. Your parent is very unreasonable and you give them grace. Or your children keep doing the same thing over and over again and you give them grace. Or your coworker isn't doing their job well and you keep having to pick up the slack for them. And you give them grace. Because of what Christ has done for us, we understand we are forgiven people. All of our sins set aside. So Paul wants to encourage their hearts. Paul also wants the Colossians to be bonded together in love, knit together in love. Recognizing what Christ has done for us causes us to love one another. We love each other because we're all part of the same family. Love is not just an emotion, but is affection that works for a person's good. And so love is affection that works for a person's good. Affection means caring. Uh, Love requires positive action working for the good of others. And love must have the good of this other person in mind. (coughs) So putting these all together, love is affection that works for another person's good. And if we're going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to really care about them such that we do work for their good. 
Now, to an extent, we could say that love for one another simply is a reality for Christians that will be true of Christians. Jesus said his disciples would be known by their love for one another. The Apostle John taught that if you don't love your brother in Christ, you're still living in darkness. So in one sense, we could just say, if you're a Christian, you will love God's people. But while love may be generally true of us, we don't always demonstrate that kind of love in our lives. Right? Sometimes I really love myself a lot more than I love you. And so when you have a need, I'm slow to share with you. I'm quick to serve myself and slow to serve others. I'm quick to be offended and slow to forgive. I find it takes a lot of work to love anyone else besides myself. Right? Love is hard work. And yet, while love is a necessary reality for Christians, it is not automatic. And that's why Paul mentions this as something he hopes to reinforce in these people he's influencing. We will love God's people, but only because of what God has done for us and what God is doing for us in Christ. Which is why Paul is pointing them straight to Christ. Pointing past the pleasures and concerns of this world, pointing past the self-help, the self-focused approaches to spirituality, pointing only to Christ. Challenging them to see the glory of Christ. Challenging them, challenging them to see how God has poured out his love on them in Jesus Christ. What knits us together is nothing external about us. What knits us together in love is Christ himself. Because knowing the love of God ourselves produces love for God's people. And Paul desperately desires for them to be bonded together in love to one another. Because hard times are coming. Challenges are coming. Uh, fabricated hopes are presenting themselves to the Colossians. False doctrine is enticing them. Uh, unbiblical models of reality will confront them. And they're going to need each other. They're going to need each other to challenge one another to be faithful to Christ. And as they deal with these distortions of truth that are confronting them in their day, they're going to need to practice true love towards one another that doesn't ignore these falsehoods, uh, but instead confronts them in love. And we need our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way. We face the same evil world that they did. And while we live in the midst of this world, we have to remember we're not to be conformed to the world. We are to make Christ known to the world. Right? This world that so often attacks us is our mission field. They're not our enemies. They're people that we are called to love and serve and share Christ with. And so we should pursue this love and unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, the home is where we're supposed to first learn how to love. Um, and yet, I'm sure we have people here who had homes where they never saw what love of a family actually looks like. Uh, but the reality is that the love of God's family transcends. It's even greater than the love of the human family. It transcends natural connections. Paul's burden is that they will have this kind of encouragement and love. Because while love is natural for Christians, it is not a default. This kind of love and commitment doesn't just happen. It requires work and commitment. It requires the hard discipline of love. This kind of unifying love is what we desire to have at Redeemer. I think we do have this sort of heart attitude in our church. Uh, visitors to the church actually comment on that. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't be do better. It doesn't mean we cannot improve in our love for one another. To ask ourselves, am I encouraging others? 
Is my, li- is my life knit together in love with my Christian brothers and sisters? Moving on, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul desires that they reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge. Paul is expressing not only that he desires for them to have understanding, but that this knowledge will bring full assurance. If they really grasp the truth about Christ, it will give them full assurance. And here's the reason. Christ has accomplished redemption. He lived the perfect life. He died in our place. His sacrifice is completely sufficient to cover all our sin. The work is finished. So to know and understand the work of Christ is to give full assurance. If you have set your faith in Christ, you have full assurance of all that God has given you in Christ. Full assurance of right standing with God. Full assurance of where your eternity will be spent. You know, in most religions, you can never be sure. Because in most religions, it's based on your work. And many religions have a savior of some kind, but they still fundamentally require you to work. It always comes back to how you live your life. So you can never really be sure because your life can never really be perfect. And so if you do wrong, you can lose your position. The Roman Catholic Church does teach you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to participate in God's grace. You have to do good works, pray the rosary, and these other things, and you'll be saved. Uh, Islam commands that you have to believe in Allah as he's revealed in the Quran, uh, which is not the God of the Bible. You have to obey his commands, and at the judgment, your good works and bad works will be weighed out on the scale. And if your good works outweigh your bad, then Allah might let you into paradise. <coughs> Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, not actually the Jesus of the Bible, but a Jesus of their own invention, and obey the rules, and you will be saved. You know, Hinduism teaches karma. Uh, good or evil of your actions determine your life and determine your incarnation and reincarnation. Um, until finally you overcome all your karma and eventually you reach nirvana. Um, Again, it comes back to your works. Buddha. uh, Buddhism teaches you believe certain things and you live a moral life and you'll have peace. In every false belief system, it comes back to your works. And so you can never have full assurance because it always comes back to you and how perfect you are today. This is why really understanding Christ gives full Assurance, Because you're no longer looking to yourself for redemption. Jesus accomplished redemption fully, completely, for all time. Christ's death was sufficient to cover all your sins, past, present, and future. And for all those who set their faith in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven, set aside, no longer counted against you. Jesus died to reconcile sinners like you and like me to God. You can have full assurance if you believe in Jesus who lived and died for sinners. I wonder, where are you looking for your hope and your confidence for eternity? Perhaps you're looking to philosophy. You took a freshman philosophy class in college and you've got all the worldview solutions figured out. 
Maybe you're just counting on your own wisdom. You, you're, you're pretty smart. You've figured things out in the world. You know how to discern the facts, and so you're counting on your own wisdom. Maybe you look to your own good works. You know, you like to help little ladies across the street. You give generously, or at least compared to the person next to you. You don't cause problems. You pay your taxes. You know, whatever you do, you could do more. Or you could do better. And whatever you don't do, someone else is not doing better than you. You can't be good enough. Because you can't match God's standard. Because God's standard is perfect righteousness. And none of us are perfectly righteous. We have to look to Christ and Christ alone. We can't improve on his work. We cannot add to his work. Anything we add would simply be our own pride, our own false confidence, showing that we don't even understand what Christ did. You can't add anything to perfection. You can't add your own works to God's grace. Back in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 9 and 10, Paul had prayed that they would have wisdom and knowledge. All we need to see is that truth is important. Knowledge is important. Understanding reality is essential. Christians don't live with their heads in the sand, pretending there's no evil in the world. Christians don't ignore truth. Christian, Christianity is the absolute commitment to absolute truth. We don't follow Jesus Christ in spite of reality. We follow Jesus Christ because he is the center of reality. And a person can only understand truth rightly through Jesus Christ. And that brings us to this point Paul's been driving towards. He's concerned for all those Christians he hasn't met, that they would be encouraged in love, middle of verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants them to know God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, last week he referred to this mystery as Christ in you. Here he shortens the mystery to just Christ. He's gone from the very specific reality of Christ's unique connection to his people to the broader reality of Christ himself. All the glory of Christ himself, fulfilling God's eternal purpose and promises, dying for his people, reconciling the world to God, reconciling us as his people to God. Christ is the mystery, hidden in ages past, but now revealed. And Paul is God's ambassador to reveal Christ to the world. Paul is God's emissary to proclaim the glory of Christ. We have this very concise summary of Christ, the one who gives assurance, the one who grants understanding and knowledge, the one who reveals God's mystery and who is God's mystery, Christ, the glory of God himself. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Douglas Moo writes, This is the Christological high point of the letter, which expresses beautifully and compactly the cutting-edge Christological point. Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. Christ is the one in whom is found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is a very comprehensive statement. Uh, knowledge and wisdom represent the Old Testament concepts of knowing the truth of God 
and knowing how to apply that truth to life. Uh, we actually, with the kids, studied Proverbs in Sunday school this morning, where we, we see God's wisdom revealed. Uh, knowledge addresses the intellect, the mind, knowing. Uh, wisdom is practical knowledge. Uh, Mu writes, the ability to understand reality from God's perspective and to act on that understanding. And so Old Testament wisdom literature refers to wisdom and knowledge as treasures, and Paul's picking up on that Old Testament language. The treasure being hidden might refer to the mystery of Christ that was unknown in ages past and is now revealed. Or it may just be simply referring to the fact that the way you preserve treasure is by hiding it. Right? Treasure is just deposited and stored up for us in Christ. Either way, the treasure is wrapped up in the glory of Christ. Those who obtain this treasure find life. Those who grasp this treasure are able to truly understand the world we live in. Now, you may be thinking, I know some Christians who are not particularly wise or knowledgeable. And this is true. I know some too. Not me. Other Christians. Not every Christian has great wisdom and knowledge. And this is part of why Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. To help impart wisdom and knowledge to them. Christ is the source of of all true wisdom and knowledge, but we access that wisdom and knowledge only through knowing and growing in our knowledge of Christ. We don't obtain knowledge by doing nothing. We don't grow in knowledge by being lazy. We have to pursue knowing Christ through his word. And if we humbly and faithfully study God's word in faith, he will grant us true wisdom, true knowledge that's found only in Christ. But it always comes back to Christ himself. People can study God's word and study God's word and study God's word and never come to knowledge and wisdom if they don't study God's word in light of Christ. You know, for generations, for millennia, God's people didn't have a complete grasp of God's eternal plan of redemption. They knew what God had revealed, but God had still left part of this mystery to be uncovered later. And Christ is the mystery. But in Christ, God revealed the mystery that he was the one who would redeem people from every tribe and language and nation. In Christ, God revealed it was his own son who would pay the price for sin. In Christ, God revealed that his son would be the sacrificial substitute for sinners. To die in the place of sinners. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, this is what you need to understand. Christ himself. You may not know that. That's where the word Christian comes from. It means a little Christ. And the people who first called Christians Christians were actually kind of mocking them. Oh, you're, you're little Christ. You're trying to be like Christ. And the followers of Christ loved it. They were like, that's, that's right. We want to be like Christ. Christ, and so they took that name on themselves. The followers of Christ aimed to be like him. They talked all about him, so the people around said, oh, you're little Christ. Jesus Christ is God's own son who came to earth and died for sinners. He lived the perfect life of righteousness. He's the only person who always did what is good and right and perfect. And then he laid down his life for his people. He died on a cross as a sacrifice for sin. He took the sin of his people on himself, and he gives his people his own perfect righteousness. 
And after three days in the tomb, he rose from the dead. He conquered death. And everyone who trusts in Christ is granted eternal life. Life that can never be lost. Which again is why we have assurance. If you have something that cannot be lost, then you know you always have it. Everyone who trusts in Christ is given eternal life. Your life of sin is applied to Jesus. His perfect righteousness is applied to you. This is the center of Christianity. Jesus Christ died for sinners like me and sinners like you. And the question for you is, will you receive him? Will you believe in him? Are you actively setting your faith in Jesus Christ? Not did you pray a prayer one day. Not did you make a profession of faith at some time in your life. No, do you today believe in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus Christ as God has revealed him to us in the Bible? Savior, Lord, King, Son of God, source of all true wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants his readers to fully know Christ and to experience all the love and assurance that come from knowing Christ and what he has done. And we can have that same confidence ourselves from fully knowing Christ. Let's look at our second main point, holding fast to Christ. Holding fast to Christ. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul has been sharing about Christ, one, so that they will see the glory of Christ, but two, so that they will not be deceived. The this, when he says, I say this, that Paul's referring to is the truth of Christ he's been talking about. And he teaches them these things about Christ to protect them from what he calls plausible arguments. Now, plausible arguments translates an interesting word. Um, Plato uses this same, same word uh, to refer to popular oratory in contrast to sound logic. It sounds good until you examine the details. So Bible translations translate this idea as plausible arguments, uh, persuasive arguments, well-crafted arguments, fine-sounding arguments, enticing words, all getting the idea that it sounds good, but it's not actually correct. It's kind of like the slick salesman who sounds very convincing, but their sales pitch isn't really accurate. It all sounds wonderful until you get the product home, and it doesn't work like the salesman promised that it would. It doesn't do the things he said it would do, and it quits working after a week. What all sounded so good late at night on television? He had a very convincing argument. It sounded very plausible, but it was a lie. Um, I don't know if y'all ever saw the infomercial for, uh, it was a little counter oven. And over and over, the sales guy, it was an infomercial, you know, late night. Over and over, he would say, you can set it and forget it. And throughout the show, set it and forget it. He'd get the audience to say it with him. Set it and forget it. Um, someone gave a friend of mine this. At least they claimed it was given to them. Um, and on the box, the first thing you see is, do not set it and forget it. Like the, the big sales pitch was entirely a lie. People's houses caught fire because they set it and forgot it. And their house caught fire. Well, in the same way, there are philosophies and rhetoric about God and eternity that sound very convincing, but which are not actually true. 
And if we don't really know and understand Christ, we might be deceived by these false arguments. We might be deluded into hearing these false things and believing they're the truth. We might begin thinking true wisdom is not found in Scripture but out in the world. We might start looking to these seemingly solid arguments to get knowledge. And Paul warns the Colossians in general here, but as we move through his letter, he's going to get more specific in these dangers. We have to remember, we can be deluded. We can be deceived. Uh, We're not omniscient. We don't have all wisdom. And Satan would be more than happy to deceive us. He would be more than happy for us to believe lies. The world would have much rather that no one believed in Jesus or talked about Jesus because of his demands on our lives, because of his proclamation that sinners need a savior, with his declaration that he's Lord of all. Satan would much rather that we believe something else. And so he's actively spreading lies. Just consider how much of the world uh, believes that people are basically good, that people are essentially good. How many people think God will accept them exactly as they are, and maybe even that he must accept them exactly as they are? And consider all the ways that even as a Christian, you have believed things that were not true. Things you believed because someone taught them to you, or you just worked it out in your head, and then you open the pages of Scripture, and you realize that you were wrong. Thoughts and ideas you had, logical arguments you had made, Practical wisdom that turned out not to be as wise as you thought. We were convinced that we knew. And then we studied the Bible and we realized we were 100% wrong. We can all be deluded by plausible sounding arguments. Which is why we so desperately need to know Christ. We need to be deeply connected to him through his word. Because true wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. When we really know Christ in fullness, all the holes in these plausible arguments become much more obvious. All the errors that seemed so convincing come to light. This is the first time Paul warns the Colossians about the possibility of false teaching. He's established this firm foundation of the truth of Christ, and only then does he begin to share with them about what is false. Because when we really see when we really grasp, when we really understand Christ, all false teachings pale in comparison to the glory of Christ. Who Christ is, what Christ has accomplished, what Christ demands of us. David Garland writes, A greater grasp of God's saving purposes in and through Christ will enable Paul's readers better to fend off false teaching. If they are firmly rooted in understanding the rich mystery of their faith, The Colossians cannot be deceived or deluded by arguments, no matter how persuasive or plausible. Understanding Christ helps us protect us from from false teaching. Verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Paul's job is to minister to the entire church anywhere it exists. Although he isn't present with them in body, in spirit, he is present. It's similar to the idea of someone sending you off and saying, I'm behind you 100%, and you know that they really mean it. However, however, Paul rarely, if ever, 
uses spirit without some reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Douglas Moo writes, His presence with the Colossians then is not a simple, you'll be in my thoughts and prayers, but involves a profound corporate sense of identity based on and mediated by the Spirit of God. It is on the basis of this union, effected in and by Christ and mediated by the Spirit, that Paul can address the Colossian Christians. Paul doesn't let his distance keep him from ministering to the Colossians. He's going to exalt Christ any way he can, whether present with them or absent from them. In much the same way, our own ministry should extend beyond where we are, especially in our connected world where you can speak to someone anywhere around the world at a moment's notice. All right, in less than five minutes, you could have a connection with people you haven't seen in 30 years. We just have to have the perspective that we can be God's instruments for his kingdom wherever he's placed us. Middle of verse 5, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul's giving them a real warning of theological danger he sees for the Colossians, and yet he still praises them for, his current, for their current faith. Uh, this is consistent with what he said back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul really does rejoice in the firmness of their faith, the solid foundation that they have, and it is because of their foundation that he's challenging them to stay faithful. Paul is glad for where they are today, but he wants to ensure that they stand firm. Douglas Moo again, the Colossian Christians have started well, and they are continuing well. It is the future for which Paul is concerned. Another scholar writes, the epistle is not a vaccination against heresy. Excuse me, it is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already afflicted. So they are living faithfully. They are walking in the faith, and Paul is ensuring they continue to do so. It's important. It is essential for us to have a firm foundation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even people who understand the gospel can slowly turn away from it. If we, be, if we become convinced by good-sounding arguments, we can slowly turn away from the truth of the gospel. We tell ourselves that that sounds good. We're willing to bend a little bit. But a distortion of the gospel always kills in the end. You know, maybe you've known people who at one time seemed, seemed to really believe the gospel, uh, but they started trying to accommodate the teachings of a cult. Maybe they had a friend in the cult and they were trying to accommodate them. Maybe they wanted to be really open and gracious and they started giving credence to these false teachings. And over time, they actually ended up abandoning the truth and joining the cult. As they accommodated that false gospel in their heart, they came to believe it and they came to reject the truth. It is good and right to acknowledge that there are other Christians in other churches that don't look exactly like our own church. It's important for us to realize that apart from our secondary differences, we have much in common with true churches, Christians in very different denominations, very different ministries than our own. But there's a difference between Christians in different ministries that have secondary differences than us and people who believe a false 
gospel. We can almost always fellowship in some way with churches and ministries that teach the same gospel, but we must never validate people who teach a false gospel. We must stand firm on the gospel and never waver on it. Christ has paid the price in full, and there is nothing we can add to his work. These verses that we've looked at, they they wrap up the opening section of the letter, uh, focusing on the glory of Christ, and they begin to prepare us for what Paul is bringing up next as he begins to address false hopes, false promises that we see from the world. Our Our primary task is to fully know Christ. We must search the scriptures and study the scriptures to really understand Christ in all his glory. And the more we know Christ, the more grounded and established we will be. We'll be able to confront the false teachings, the false gospels and ideologies that come to us. We'll have joy and confidence in our knowledge of Christ. So as we walk in the world this week, let us seek to know Christ and to make him known. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, we praise you for your glory and majesty, that you are preeminent in all things, and that you came to earth to redeem your people. You came to earth to reconcile the world to God. And we praise you that you would do this for us, that you would die in our place. And may we truly understand your greatness and glory. May we truly understand how you have accomplished salvation for your people so that we would rest in you and never in ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.